are under your word. We are um, under the place where it is the best place in the world to be. Father, you are God. You, you speak to your people. What the scripture clearly testifies is the fact that you are the God who speaks. We are here because we, where we, you, are, you enabled us to listen to your calling. You listen to your voice, and that's why we're here. You have been very good to us as you have spoken to us over the years. We pray, dear God, that may we continue to be able to hear your voice, especially today as we are discussing about the Christian call to, to love the church. We pray that these words, these instructions, uh, shape the way we desire to spend our days in this world. All these things in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Okay, here we go. So we are beginning our, I have no idea when we're going to end, series on 1 Corinthians. Um, it's, in, it's a new year. Uh, maybe my daughter will be married by the time I, I, I end this series. And so the question is, why 1 Corinthians? Why were we doing, uh, studying 1 Corinthians? We're doing 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians is about loving and serving the church of God. It's Paul's instructions of how to do church, right? That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. And this is really relevant in the light of what we talked about last week. Remember what we talked about last week? We talked about how Jesus says, the way you know that you're building your foundation is if you not only listen to his words, but practice what he says, actually live out what he says. The Christian call is not only to listen, which is very, very important, but is also called to live out. The Christian call that our Lord gave to every single one of us in this room and outside of this room, it is to live out our faith, loving and serving the people whom he died for. The church, the people of God, are the most precious people in the universe because it is only for them that Christ died. And therefore, the calling of all our lives is to spend all our days serving and loving and worshiping with the people of God. I think it is very unfortunate these days that church became just a commodity. A lot of people think church exists to, so that I can, you know, to, to benefit me. Right? We, we have the shopper's mentality of church. I will go to this church as long as it agrees with my comfort level, as long as it agrees with my view of life, then I will stay and, stay and listen to the church. But I will leave the church once I start disagreeing with, with the church. So people have this commodity mindset of the church. I will stay so long as it benefits me, but I will leave once it, once it discomforts me. People have a spectator view of the church where you come to church to listen, to, 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 to observe what God wants you to do, what, the, the, to observe the word of God. But they don't want to get involved. They don't want to get involved in the life of the church. But that is not, all, that is not the Christian's calling. The Christian's calling is find the local body of believers that you will be connected to, and you will start worshiping together and serving. The modern view of church as a commodity, the modern view of the church as a spectator sport, that is not the gospel, and that is not living out the commands of Christ. Of course, you're here. Why am I preaching to you? All of you are here. All of you are members, right? All of you are members. We said a couple of visitors. And that's, what, that's God's will for you. To find a local body of believers and to spend as long as you can with those body of believers until God moves you. That's God's will for you. But the reality is this. People are hard. Once you start getting connected to the church, once you start to intermingle your lives, our lives with the people in this church, it gets ugly. Right? Because people are not easy. Right? Like, it's like, you know, when you're, before you're married, Right? You have this idea of view of romance, and you have this idea of view of what, you know, what relationships are. Like my daughter, has, she's going into this boy phase right now. I hate it so much. I just hate it so much. Right? So much I hate it. Right? 
But in her mind, she has this fantasy idea, and she talked about marriage. I, I hate it so much. But in her mind, she has this idea of what a marriage is and what a relationship and all that stuff. But as you know, and all of you know, once you start, when you actually start, I do, right? When, like dating is one thing. But when, I'm, I'm sorry for those of you who are engaged. I'm not just, it's not meant to scare you. But the moment you say I do and start mingling your lives, holy moly, it's hard. Ain't it? Like everyone, you can't agree. It's hard. It doesn't diminish the fact that your spouse is lovely and good and, you know, the person is like, really, you can't live without her. Certainly, I can't live without, live without my wife, right? But actually mingling and doing life together, it is so hard. People have an idealistic view of church. Right? Church is supposed to be this. Church is supposed to be that. Church is supposed to be this. Having that ideal version of church, it's like you're in the dating phase of a church. But when you actually start committing to the church, start attending small groups, start talking to people, start getting involved in ministry, holy smokes, it's hard. Because people are broken, people are sinners, people are broken, people are broken in so many different pieces. They are. That's what the Bible is. All of us are meant to, I mean, this is the thought I'll occupy my brain this week. All of us are meant to orbit around God. Like, like the earth orbits around the sun. And because it orbits around the sun, we get warmth, we get life in this world, right? All of us is designed to orbit around God because God is the ultimate constant. He is the constant. And everything orbits around God. In, what is it, Acts chapter 17, it says, Paul says, we live and move and have our being in him. Whether you're Christian or not, by the nature of our design, we're called to orbit around God. But when you don't, when you don't, when people start, when people do not believe that they're supposed to orbit around God, if they are content in their ignorance of Him, what eventually happens is spiritual death happens. Just like when a plant doesn't see the sunlight, it dies. When we don't orbit around God, or when we don't think we need to orbit around God, then our spirit starts to die. And when our spirit starts, to, when our spirit, dead spirits causes brokenness all around. It is this ignorance of God, ignorance of the fact that we're supposed to live and move and have our being, and because we turn our back towards Him, everything in our lives breaks down, internally and externally. If there is a plague that is in, um, among modern young people these days, if there's one plague, if, 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 you live, if, you talk, I mean, if you go talk to an average college person, what's the number, what, what are the, some of the things that modern college people are struggling with? What are some of the things? I'm sorry? What? Okay, Bernie Sanders. All right, student debt. <laughs> But, but when you're in college, you're, 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 in, you're, in like, you're in a bubble, right? So if you interview, you interview them, I mean, student debt, you're in denial for four years, right? But in, in the campus, what are people depressed about? Anxiety, depression, body image, right? Um, people in the Instagram don't like you very much. You don't get a lot of likes at Facebook, whatever it is. There is this deep-seated depression that is sweeping the minds of young people. Did you know the rate of suicide among teenage girls is spiking up to the point where CDC, Center for Disease Control, is worried? And these girls who are taking their own lives are not from poor backgrounds. They're from white America. No offense, white people, right? They're from like upper middle class, well-to-do people. And they want to kill themselves. Tell me that's not an example of a spirit that is dead. Spirit that is confused because it doesn't orbit around God or it doesn't think that it needs to orbit around God. People with broke, dead spirits, what happens? They cause brokenness and destruction in, in, in their interpersonal relationships. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of death, the fruit of the flesh, the fruit of the dead spirit is this. Number one, strife. You know what strife is? Bitter, angry arguments. 
because people's spirits are dead, inevitably they get involved in bitter, angry disagreements. Have you ever gotten involved in bitter, angry disagreements? Another evidence of spiritual death is jealousy, envy, fits of rage, division. That's the fruit of a heart that is dead. In contrast, when, we, when our spiritual eyes are open to God and we worship Christ for who he is, Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love means actually acting out kindness and goodness towards someone else. Practicing forgiveness. Being patient. Bearing each other's burdens. That's the fruit that you bear when you start to worship Christ. When you start to recognize who he is for who he is. And when you start to orbit around him. That's the evidence of whether you know Christ or not. And that is why when a person is truly born again, when a person is truly born again, the evidence of their fruit is, is the way they treat other people, people that are closest to them, change. When you, during baptism class, during, during membership class, the thing that I always ask is, what is the evidence of your salvation? If you are saved, there needs to be fruit. What is the evidence of your salvation? And many people give good answers. And the number one answer is the way that I treat my spouse, the way that I treat my mom, the way that I treat other people, it starts to change. That's the most common answer. And if you give me that answer, you, you pass. The evidence of salvation is the mending of interpersonal relationships. Um, I love Korean dramas. I love Netflix, and Netflix has good Korean dramas. So the Korean drama that I'm watching right now is called, this drama called Chocolate. You guys know Chocolate? It takes place in a hospice where the whole drama is about healing people, like sending, you know, hospice is people where, come, where people come to die, and the drama is all about, like, helping people die well. Very uplifting, by the way. And, in, in, and one or two of the main characters are these cousins, right? And, for, and, and, and they were like, taught to be each other's rivals and hate each other. So their entire lives, these two main characters hate each other, and they fight. Right? They fight physically, they fight strategically, they fight with words, they fight all their lives. In the last episode, like yesterday's episode, which led me to tears, one of the cousins starts to look at the other cousin that he was at war with, and he asks his dad, why do I have to fight him? I spent my entire life fighting him. But why do I need to fight him? Why, why do I need to hate him? There's a change in his disposition about the way he views his cousin. That's the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. When you start to worship Christ and start to orbit around him, how you treat others, especially the people in the church, will change. All of us are called, whether it is this church or some other church, if you're just visiting, I'm glad that you visited, right? And I hope that you'll join us. But if not, I'm okay, right? I'm, I'm used to the rejection. I got rejected all my life. It's okay. But if you choose to move on, I pray and I hope that you'll find a church that you can stay and that you can connect, that you can serve, that you can worship with. And that a place where you, can get, where you will get your heart broken. Where you, will need, where you will be able to practice forgiveness and patience. For that kind of life is God's calling for all of us. Churches aren't perfect. People aren't perfect. It is to these imperfect people of, of the church in Corinth that Paul writes this letter. 
Who are the people? Why did Paul write this letter? Number one, Paul wrote this letter because he loves the church in Corinth. Why? Because God used him to found that church. Paul is the founding teacher, founding elder of that church. He, he went to Corinthians for 18 months, and he preached and he taught at the synagogue, and the church was established. He loved that church. But when he left that church, things started to fall apart. People started to do bad things to one another. The, the church started to have many, many problems. You name it, they had their problems. Number one, number one of the first problems that they had, they had division. They had sex. They had cliques. One clique says, I will follow, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a follower of Paul. Another clique says, I'm a follower of Apollos, which is a you know, very charismatic teacher. Another sect says, I'm a follower of Peter. Another sect says, I'm OG, I'm follower of Jesus Christ. I don't need Paul, I don't need Apollos, I don't need any other teacher. I get my religion directly from Jesus, it's me and Jesus, and forget all of that. They, there were divisions in the church. I belong to this team, I belong to that team. I, they had different cliques. We don't have cliques here, do we? Oh my goodness, Really? But not only did they have cliques, they were nasty about it. It's like the Arlington group says, we're the only true church. Burke small group, you guys, are, you guys don't know what you're talking about. What are the Fairfax group? Fairfax group, where are they at? We're the OGs, the Arlington would say. The one in Burke will say, well, we have the most people who serve. That's not true. Right? There are sects. And they hate each other within the church. That was a huge problem. Another problem in the, in the church of Corinth, people were suing each other civilly. They were taking each other to court because they couldn't resolve their differences. Another problem in the church of Corinth, spiritual pride. God has blessed that church with many spiritual gifts. Some people have the gift of tongues. Some people have the gift of prophecy. Some people have, people have the gift of serving. Some people have the gift of whatever. And people with different spiritual gifts thought that their gift was number one. You know, the real gift is worship team. You need music. But I thought the worship team, this church is dead. Pastors would say, yeah, it's the preaching, man. You don't need anyone else. We just need the Bible and the preacher, and that's all you need. The, 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 the new welcoming team says, it's not going to matter if people don't feel welcome. My gift is the one that matters. The audiovisual team will say, oh, yeah? If you don't see anything in the background, what are you? We're the one that matters. Finance team. Oh, you guys are, you guys are cute. But it's the money that makes the world go round, kids. People thought their gift was the most important gift. And they were being built up spiritually. They were building, getting angry and being spiritually built up. Another big problem in the Church of Corinth, sexual immorality. Corinth, we'll talk about it a little bit later, was a sexually charged up city. Everyone was sleeping with everyone. Two of the deities that they worshipped were Aphrodite and Apollos. And, the, and those were sex gods, basically. People in the church started to adopt, adapt, adopt, adapt, practice the, the sexual practice of culture. In fact, some people in the church of Corinth went above the normal sexual practices of the church, of the city. Some dude, right, what he did was so bad, Paul says, even the unbelievers of the city are shocked by what that guy is doing. There were people in that church that even when the unbeliever, when they listened, looked at that guy, whoa, what is, what is wrong with that guy? What's going on? Fighting, jealousy, pride, sexual morality. It's a mess. It's a type of church where you don't want to stay, where you want, you can, it's, 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 you want to leave. It's a mess. So what does Paul do? 
what is the first thing that Paul says in today's letter? How does he introduce the letter? Does he say, you sinners, you are not worthy of the blood of Christ. You are all going to hell, you sinners. I regret forming you. How are you so spiritually, your spiritual pride offends me. You're disgusting. Is that what, is that what Paul says? Does Paul straight, like, just start addressing what the, what the problems of the church were? No. What are the, what are the first things that Paul says in this letter? Let's shoot it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what did it say? Paul says, Paul starts a letter. He says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He's calling them saints, by the way. Together with all those in, the, in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you from peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. Really? You dudes who are suing each other in churches, you dudes who are, who are practicing detestable sexual morality, you dudes who are fighting and fighting in the church, Paul says, I thank God for you. Whoa, what, why? Paul starts his letter by mentioning, by reminding them of two things. First thing that he reminds them of is the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God who called them into fellowship with Christ. And the second thing that Paul reminds us through these verses, they re he reminds them of the grace and the love that they received from Christ. Rather than starting the letter, cursing them out, addressing specific sins, he reminds them of the sovereignty of God and the grace and love of Jesus Christ. That's how you correct people, by the way. The way you rebuke people, you don't rebuke people by, by just going straight to what there, what's wrong with them, as a lot of married couples tend to do. You don't change people that way. You change people by contextualizing who they are in the light of who God is. Always before addressing any sins, even your own. The way you change is, you need to take you and other people that you have problems with, and you need to take them out and frame it within the bigger context of the sovereignty and the grace of God. Does it make sense? You don't, make, you don't change people by just nagging at what is wrong with them. You start to change people by reminding them of God. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul starts his letter, number one, by reminding them of the sovereignty of God. What does he say? How does he start? He says, he mentions three people, three groups of people, right, in, in the first three verses. He mentions himself. What does he call himself? He says, Paul called to be an apostle, right, of God, right, called by God, called, I'm sorry, Paul refers to himself as someone who's called by, called by the will of God for to be, an, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Then Paul mentions Sosthenes. And Paul mentions the Corinthian Christian, the Corinthian church. And how, what does he call them? He calls them those who are sanctified by the will of God. Why does he mention these three groups of people in his starting letter, in, when, as he's starting this letter? What do these three groups of people have in common? What they have in common is this. None of them were worthy to be called the children of God. These three groups of people were people, if, if God left them alone, were the enemies of God. Paul, who was Paul? Paul was an apostle. I'm sorry, before Paul was an apostle, he was a church persecutor, right? He imprisoned and he led many Christians to death. And he, when he was doing it, he thought he was doing the right thing. 
if God left them alone, he would be persecuting more Christians. But rather than leaving him where he, where, to, be, to, be, to, to be an enemy of God, Jesus Christ comes to him and changes him, shows love upon him, and he became an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is Sosthenes? Sosthenes, if you, if, if you read Acts chapter 18, was a chief priest of the temple, one, in one of the temples in, in, the, in, the church of, in, in the town of Corinth. In the town of Corinth, there were synagogues, there were Jewish synagogues, and Sosthenes is one of the, one of the chief, chief priests there. Sosthenes, when Paul first got to Acts, opposed Paul. He was saying what Paul was preaching, specifically about Jesus Christ, was nonsense. Sosthenes believed what Paul was preaching was dangerous. But God converts him. How are the people in the church of Corinth? Before God, they were sexed up, money-crazed, sinful, lustful, greedy people. But Paul says, God sanctified you. God did not leave you as you are. He sanctified you. He separated you out of the world to be his. You are who you are. I am who I am. Sosthenes is who Sosthenes is because of the sovereign will of God. Because God willed it, we belong to him. So before looking at each other in spiteful ways, Paul is saying, Understand, the people that you're holding in contempt are also people whom God has called to be His. None of us, by our natural birth, are worthy to be called sons of God. If you think that you are, it is the most natural thing in the world for you to be called the children of God, then I don't think you understand the gospel. If you think it is the most natural thing in the world for God to, call, for God to love you and call you His, you're not understanding the gospel because all of us, by our natural birth, was once a Paul, was a Sosthenes, once the people in Corinth, opposers of God. But God called and God moved and God worked the pieces of God worked in the background so that we and every Christian in the world, the history of the world, can call God our Father. It is God who has called us. It is God who sanctified us. It is Christ who loved us. Every Christian is like that. You know how the Corinthians became, you know how the Corinthians became Christians? You know what happened? Read, read Acts, chapter, Acts chapter 17 and 18. Let's talk about the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth is this. The city of Corinth was a very important port city in the, in the Roman Empire. It is, it is, this is Greece. Corinth is in the southern west tip, like, in, like southwest point of Greece. Around Greece, there was a body of water, the, the Mediterranean Sea, right? And the, and the seas around the Mediterranean Sea, it was very rough. There were many, like, you know, waves and stuff. So, you know, so, so in order to, you know, go to, in order, in order for all the trade ships from, to, go, to go from Greece to all the other parts of the world, they have to go through Corinth. Corinth was a strategic hub of, of many ships Right? That traveled from Greece to Rome to, the, to, to Asia. It was a very important port city. Ships from all over the world docked at Corinth. And if you're, and, it's, it, and, it, and, it, and therefore, because of the commercial center of, of the city, because of the fact that the city was a commercial center, a lot of money went back and forth. The city became rich. Like Hong Kong. It's like Hong Kong. It's like an island. Have you been to Hong Kong? I've never been to My brother lived in Hong Kong. But evidently, Hong Kong has a lot of money. My, my brother said like, he belonged to a church, and the church was so rich because there were so many investment bankers in that church. They threw like, their pastors, the church members threw like, the first birthday of their pastor in the most priciest hotel in Hong Kong. I don't, I'm not saying you have to do that, right? You know, you know because I'm a humble man. But they're so rich. My, my, our pastor's son's birthday. Let's throw it at the riskiest hotel in Hong Kong because they're so rich. Money was flowing just like everywhere. That was Hong Kong. That, that was Corinth. It was diverse. People from many different parts of the world converged in, in, in Corinth. 
But you know what the interesting thing is? Money plus many people equals what? Sexual immorality is crazy. In the history of the world, when you get money and a large group of people together, what do they do? Say, let's be sexually immoral. It's crazy. Right? In the history of the world, there was no city that wasn't sexually immoral. And these people lived it up. Like I said, two of the deities that they, that they worshipped was Aphrodite, the goddess of... Aphrodite is the goddess of love, right? But their definition of love is, is sex. So the, the biggest temple belonged to Aphrodite, and the priestess of the temple were prostitutes. You know, they were bivocational prostitutes. Monday through Friday, they, would be, they were like prostitutes, and on Sunday they would come, and they would serve Aphrodite. And people worshipped Aphrodite. Another big god in, in Corinth was Apollos, god of war, isn't it? I don't, I don't know Greek mythology. God of the sun, oh, thank you. But evidently, they used God as a, of the sun to, as, like they, as, as an object of sex worship or something. So who are the priests of the temple of Apollo? Male prostitutes, they say. And male prostitutes don't necessarily engage in heterosexual practices during that time. Male prostitutes were for same-sex activities. The whole city was like this. And the people in Corinth were no different. Isn't like, earning money the most natural thing we can do? It is. Let's, let's be honest. All right? We want to make money. And we have urges. So having sex is the most natural thing. So in their minds, living like that is the most natural thing in the world to do. They found nothing wrong with it. Just like modern people think nothing wrong with their sexual practices. There's nothing wrong with it. But God sends Paul to that city. How did God send Paul? He sends Paul by leading Paul to that city through Paul's various failures. Did you know that? Acts 17, Paul goes to Thessalonica, and he preaches there for three, three weeks. And it went well. People are being converted. right? People are being converted. The church is being established. Three weeks later, the Jewish people of that city start to like start a riot, and they, they wanted to like cause a, they cause an uproar. So Paul had to leave the city. Just about when things were about to get good, people are like on fire for the Lord. Just as the church was growing, Paul had to leave because of the opposition. Oh man, can you believe that? It gets going good, and then you got to leave. So he leaves. He goes to Berea, start try to try to try to like preach and you know, teach in the city of Berea. It's going good. People are getting converted a little bit. But then the Jewish people in Thessalonica follow him to Berea and cause an uproar again. So Paul has to leave again. Oh, man, so annoying. Paul goes to Athens. Athens were the philosophers, right? People who think, who think deep thoughts. And he goes to the synagogues and the temples and he starts to preach about Jesus Christ. What was the reaction? Some people thought he was an idiot. Some people think, you're crazy. Right? Because they're all like super well-read and super intellectual. Other group of people listen to him and says, oh yeah, that, that sounds good. Come back and we'll listen to some more. They listen with interest, but not persuasion. So Athens wasn't going very well. So he leaves Athens. And he goes to Corinth. When he goes to Corinth, he sees this huge city. This farm boy from Israel sees this huge city and goes, <gasps> but he doesn't know anyone. So he has to find a job. So he finds a job as a tent maker. As he was like, you know, he was trying to find a job as a tent maker, he runs into this person named Aquila, which is a fellow tent maker, and, he, and his wife Priscilla. They were in Corinth because the emperor kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome. So Aquila and Priscilla ends up in Corinth, exactly the same time as Paul ends up. Coincidence? Maybe not. So they start to work together to build a church in Corinth. You see, and Paul stays there for 18 months and preaches the gospel. 
the way the sex craze, money craze Corinthians became Christians was God was leading Paul to them through very, by closing various doors in Paul's life. God didn't give a vision to Paul that says, Paul, go to Corinth. He didn't do that. How did, how did God send Paul to Corinth? By closing doors in Thessalonica, by closing doors in Berea, by closing doors in Corinth, by closing doors in Athens. These seemingly failures Paul, God used to send Paul to the Corinthian church so that they will be converted. A couple of things to note. Once again, how are people saved? People are saved because God works in our backgrounds to send the right people so that we will hear the gospel, so that we will be converted. When we are converted, it isn't because of anything that we have done. It is because God is using, God is moving in the background so that we will be able to hear the gospel, so that we will be able to worship him. Our salvation is not our own doing. It is strictly the work of God. If you have been converted in this church, why? It is because God has moved the pieces in my life to make me be here. If my ministry in the other church was successful, I would have never come. Maybe Danny would have come because Danny likes me. But besides Danny, no one, like, I would have never known you. If Olivia didn't meet Phil, if, I don't know, I can't, I mean, they're, they're, they're the ones who's like, you know, we're hardened, you know, things, so I, can't, I can call them out and not be offended, but, you know what I mean? And everyone else, you came for whatever reason, and you came, and you came to the church and listened to the gospel, and therefore you came. It is the hand of God that made you His. Second thing that you need to understand, God uses the seemingly faili- like bad things, failures, to lead you to the place where he wants you to be. Paul ended up in Corinth because he failed in these different cities. Gospel was preached, people were being converted, but he had to leave because of opposition. It seems in Paul's eyes that he failed, I think, because he couldn't fully fulfill what he wanted to do in those cities. I think maybe part of him thought that he was a failure, maybe, but those weren't really failures. Those were just God leading him into the direction that he wanted, he wanted Paul to go. That is the will of, that is how the hand of God moves in our lives. Oftentimes, most oftentimes, he uses the no's. He uses the failures. He uses the closed doors to take you to a place where he wants you to be. Getting, getting fired from that job is not the worst thing that can happen to you. If you're a Christian, it is a gift because he's moving you to another direction. You not getting into that school is not the worst thing that is happening to you. It is the best thing that happened to you if you're a Christian because that is God moving you into a different direction. That girl saying no to you is not the worst thing that has ever happened to you. It is the greatest, greatest thing that ever happened to you because God is leading you to a right person. We stand in judgment. We think if it, if it benefits us, then it's clearly God's will. But if it hurts us, it's not God's will. That's baloney. That's not true. God is sovereign and he will use every tool in his, in, in his toolbox to lead his people into the place where he wants them to be so that they will start to bear the image of Jesus Christ in their lives. Do you not like that job that you're in right now? He led you there. I don't know why he led you there, but he did. A couple of weeks ago, Lily, remember Lily? She's working in New York, and she says she hates New York. because She hates her job. But she says, even though I hate my job, I'm learning so much about the Lord. And I said, me too! I understand. She says, I dread going to work every morning. Me too! But I'm learning so much about God. Me too! Ecclesiastes chapter 7, what does it say? It says, what does it say, guys? I don't know what it says because I couldn't memorize it. What does it say? I'll tell you what it says. One second. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. He says, when the time is good, please God, be pleased, please, please God. But when times are bad, remember this, young people, Paul, like the writer says. God made the good time as well as the bad time. 
God is sovereign regardless. Paul is reminding the Corinthians, you are a Christian because God has worked so many things out in, your, in the background so that you will be able to, so that you can be converted. It is a sovereignty of God. The people that you are disagreeing with, Paul says, are the same people whom God has worked out so that they could be his. It's hard getting, it is hard being involved in the church. I know it's hard. I think the difficult part of being a pastor is every single one of you thinks I ought to be a certain way. You, all of you have an idea what, what I'm supposed to be. Maybe it's daddy issues that you're projecting onto me. I don't know. Maybe like, you're projecting onto me as, a, as like, you want what, what your father to be, but it isn't, so you're projecting that onto me. I don't want it. Maybe like, you have this idealistic version of a pastor you saw a movie back in the day, and you think, I ought to be that dude? I don't know. Every single one of you projects your idea onto me. And I will disappoint every single one of you. You'll project your expectations on every single one of, one of them here, and you will be, be angry because the people that, that you're trying to serve will not re- respond in kind. What are you going to do? Leave? A lot of people do. Forget this church. I'm leaving. That is not the right, that is not God honoring way. Maybe if the church is making you mad, maybe that's exactly where God wants you to be. So that you will practice forgiveness. So you will strive to be to forgive that person as you understand Jesus Christ. Maybe if you're at a church that dissatisfies you, that, that you think that, that is angering you, maybe this is the place where you, God wants you to be. So that you will start to learn how to love people and serve people, even those who you disagree with. How do you do that? Know that the person that you disagree with is also have been, have been made a child of God through the grace of God, through the sovereignty of God. Is there a person in your heart right now that you don't, can't stand here? I hope it's not me. Can you not stand me? Are you going to leave? That's not the God-honoring way. It's for us to work out our love and forgiveness towards one another. God's calling for you is to be, it's to be sanctified and grow with the church. You grow with the church by going through heartbreaks and disagreements and forgiveness with one another. I can say, what's wrong with our church? And give me a laundry list. But the church is not called to satisfy your laundry list. It is called, it is this, so that you will love the church as Christ loved the church. That you will serve the church as Christ served the church. Do you, think Christ, do you think Jesus Christ is our number one fan, the way we live? Look at that guy. Did it again? Oh, shoot, man, I'm going to abandon that guy. He doesn't do that. He stays. You stay, not just stay, but strive to love and forgive. Because the person that you're love, trying to love and forgive is the person whom God has called to be his through his sovereign will. Second thing that Paul reminds them, reminds the Corinthians, and this is like really short. He also, verses 5 through 9, he reminds them of the grace that they're receiving. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So Paul is saying, not only has Christ called you, but he is in your midst, ministering to you. He is in your midst right now, ministering to you, blessing you with spiritual gifts. What is the evidence of the fact that Christ is in the midst of the Corinthians and blessing them with his spiritual gifts? Number one, the Corinthian church are blessed with their speaking. What does that mean? He's saying the way that you know Christ is in your midst is you begin to talk about Jesus Christ. 
you, begin, you, you, you talk about Jesus Christ among, in small groups, and you talk about Jesus Christ in your coworkers. You talk about Jesus Christ everywhere. Why? Because Jesus Christ is real. I love my unbelieving coworkers. They're funny. They're a hoot. But there is no connection. Because I can't really talk about Christ like, like when I'm talking with you. I don't, I don't feel that connection with them because they don't know Christ. But when I talk to you, there is a connection. And that connection is evidence of the fact that Christ is real. Unbelievers cannot talk about Christ because Christ is not real to them. But we can talk about Christ and mutually encourage one another in Christ. Because he is real. Pastor Eugene and I, we're different. He's nice, I'm not, right? Right? Like, you know, he's gentle, I'm not, clearly. His interests, my interests, different. He doesn't watch Korean dramas, I love Korean dramas. But there is a unity among us. Because we both know Christ. And we can speak about him with, with one another. I love talking to that dude. My, I talk to that dude maybe like if we, I, I have like conversation with him as I'm coming home from work because that's the only time I really have time for meetings. As we discuss about Christ in you, it is a good thing. The fact that you're able to talk about Christ in small groups is evidence that he is working in your midst. The fact that you can share the gospel with your coworkers is evidence that he is working in you. Paul says, look at you guys. You guys are talking about Christ. That's evidence that he's real, that he's, his grace is among you. Second evidence, they're, filled with, they're increasing in knowledge about Christ. That Jesus Christ is not just a theory, but they're increasing the personal knowledge of God. That's another evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ is working in you. And he's also reminding them in verse 7, look at you. Verse 6, even as a testimony about Christ as confirmed among you, which means the Holy Spirit came to you and Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit confirmed in your heart that you belong to him. That's evidence of the fact that he's in your midst. He is working in your midst. Jesus Christ has not only called you, but he's actively involved in your life, working things through in your life. Therefore, you're blessed, Corinthians. You're blessed, you're loved. He's, he's there with you. When people start to understand that Christ is in their lives and Christ loves them, Christ is working things out in their lives, the way they look at other people change. When you start to know that you've been received a lot of blessings from Christ, then the way you feel that the other person has to change. That's why that's what Paul is mentioning. They have all this problem, but Paul is approaching, Paul is rebuking them by reminding, by reminding them of the sovereignty of God and the grace of Christ. Because when the heart understands that, the other areas of the life becomes, they become aligned. People, you know, you know, the people that I read the most, like, you know, the, the Rosaria Butterfield, I talked about her last week, and this guy named Becca Cook, and my best friend in Philadelphia, all of them once lived a homosexual life. But they're not anymore. And it isn't because they prayed the gay away, or it isn't because they went to a gay conversion therapy, and it isn't because, you know, I don't know, like, you know, a priest came and exercised a gay demon away. They didn't do any of that. But all of them lived a life that is in conformity to the Bible because they start to recognize the sovereignty of God and the fact that Jesus Christ loves them. When that happened, their shifting of sexual desires, it just became a natural thing. That's how it works in everything. How do you overcome gossip? You overcome gossip by me not telling you that you shouldn't gossip. That doesn't work. If I say don't gossip, you know what you're going to do? You're going to gossip about me about telling you not to gossip. I say, don't gossip. And, and you ride home with your husband. Who is Pastor Jay thinks he is about telling me not to gossip? Doesn't he gossip? Da, 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 da. I know you. You know, it doesn't work that way. Look, when I was in college, <laughs> we know what we, stupid things, some of the stupid things that we did. We started to rebuke each other. You know how we started to rebuke each other? We sat in a circle and we shared what our sins were. And everyone commented on what, what, what our sins were. 
That's so stupid. You telling me what my sin is won't let me overcome my sin. You know, another foolish thing that, like I did? Like, not I did. There was like a pastor, right? During a revival, right? He's known for this. Like, he starts praying over you. And if he thinks that you're sinning, he will like slap your back. Right? Like he says, kneel. And we will pray kneeling, right? And like he senses a sin. He's like, he will like start praying like slowly. And then he gets all passionate. He will like start hitting me. I go, what the world? Can he slap the sin out of my back? I heard one time one of my friends was wearing a sweatshirt. And he was doing this and it doesn't seem to work. He says, take off your sweatshirt. I go, what? <laughs> Taking off the, hitting his bare back will exercise him out of his sins? No. Always contextualizing the sovereignty and the grace of Christ. That's how you do it. The way that I rebuke you, I'm so good that you don't even know that you're being rebuked. You know how, you, how I do that? By reminding you of the sovereignty and the grace of Christ. Because doing that makes you understand that you, want, you shouldn't act like that. The way you rebuke me, remind me of the sovereignty and the grace of Christ. Then I'll change. That's the engine of how our church grows. Our church grows not by having more programs, although they're important, I suppose. It's not having more people. It's not having more. That's not how our church grows. Our church grows as us individually start to recognize the sovereignty of God and the grace of Christ. As we start to orbit around God personally, it's going to start affecting the way we love the people in this church. In 2020, is it 2020? Sorry, 2020. In 2020, maybe the goal of our church to strive to love one another by orbiting Christ around Christ individually. I hope this year you will, someone will make you mad or you'll make someone mad, and I hope that you, know, you get the opportunity to reconcile. I hope for drama in 2020. Why? So that you will practice, I will practice forgiving and loving each other as Christ wants us to do. Let us pray.